Have you ever wanted something so badly for somebody else that it caused you to act uncharacteristically? Growing up, I never knew my mom to be a sports fan. My dad, my brothers, and I, we all watched sports and we loved playing sports. But my mom, not so much. She would attend our sporting events not because she cared about the game, but just because she cared about the kids that were playing. I don't remember how old I was, either in high school or maybe shortly after high school, but we went to a hockey game one time. Hockey is always fun to watch. Not being too invested in either of the teams that were playing, I just sat back and enjoyed the game, thinking this is fun. It's fun to be out as a family watching this game. And there was a close play at the net. And who was the first person standing up and screaming but my mother? I'd never seen that side of her before. I thought she would have seen a snake or something. But here she is, jumping up and excited about this game. She doesn't care about sports, or so I thought. I learned something about my mom that day. She cared about hockey, and she definitely cared who won that game. I realized then that she grew up in Grafton, North Dakota, where you first learn to crawl, and then you learn how to put on skates, and you play hockey right after that. My mom loves hockey. I found out later my parents used to have season tickets to hockey games until our kids came along and ate up all the extra spending. But she loves hockey. It can be a funny thing, the things that we really get excited about, isn't it? Things that you wouldn't even expect at times, even if it's just a game. We want our team to win so badly that we'll start yelling at officials, even when they can't hear us because they're on the other side of the TV screen. But we plead with them that they would see things from our point of view, and maybe we try to convince ourselves, well, we just care about the kids that are playing the game. That's all we care about. But deep down, we care about our team winning, and that's what we really want. That's a lighthearted example about caring so badly about something that it causes you to act rather uncharacteristically. But what about digging deeper? Have you ever wanted something so badly for someone else that it caused you to cry? not just a tear or two, but to weep. Parents, you've probably been there a time or two for your kids. But what about for complete strangers? What about for people who don't care about you at all, but for people who, down at their very core, can't stand you and hate you and are opposed to you? For people who aren't just oblivious but hostile to you, would you ever cry for them? because you want something so badly for them. It didn't make a difference for Jesus. In our text this morning, we find Jesus approaching a city, and he is moved to tears. Scripture says that he is weeping. He wept. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. So read verses 41 through 48, and we'll see why Jesus is weeping on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Again, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 41 reading in Jesus' name. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. 
He was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do. For all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Father God, these are your words and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive the message that you have for us today. Help us, Father, to see Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage today begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. A few verses earlier, you'll find the adoring crowds praising God joyfully for all that Jesus had done and rightfully acknowledging him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus continues riding this donkey, he approaches the city of Jerusalem. At the beginning of our text, he sees it on the horizon, and he breaks down, weeping. And verse 42 tells us why. Jesus says, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus is lamenting over the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's lamenting because they don't know peace. They don't even know where it comes from. Though he is there in their midst, he is coming to bring peace, to accomplish peace. They didn't recognize it. Jesus is hiding there in plain sight. They refused to acknowledge him. The crowds that had gathered praising Jesus as king were looking forward to having peace. Peace from Rome. They were tired of being servants of the Caesar. They wanted to go back to the old days, back when they had their own king, when they had their own sovereignty. Jesus weeps because he knows what's about to happen. It won't be long. In verses 43 and 44, he vividly describes what's going to happen. Within a short 40 40 years, their enemies will come and barricade them in in the city and surround them so that nobody can get out, so no one can escape. And then they'll come in to destroy the city. They'll destroy the temple. They will destroy the inhabitants, men, women, and children. They will slaughter them without sparing any. Peace doesn't come from political rule. Peace isn't found in national sovereignty. It's just a pseudo-peace if that's what you're banking on. It's just a sham. It's not real peace. It's not lasting peace. It's not true peace. And as the passage continues on, we find another group of people here in Jerusalem who are just looking for their own peace. And can we blame them? At the end of the day, we all just want peace, right? Only this peace isn't wrapped up in politics. This peace is wrapped up in another temporary wrapping. This peace is wrapped up in money. They're looking for financial peace. Jesus finds a group of people here that are selling in the temple. These aren't Boy Scouts selling popcorn or Girl Scouts selling cookies. These were people who were selling animals to be sacrificed at outrageous prices. Those poor souls who forgot to bring a sacrifice or who couldn't bring their sacrifice or an animal to sacrifice could purchase one here in the temple for an arm and a leg. These salesmen were profiteering in the temple. The temple is no place for that kind of activity. It was meant to be a place of prayer and peace. But these salesmen were green with greed, and they were seeking their own financial peace. Money was more important to them than the souls of their brothers and sisters. Money was more important to these salesmen than their very own souls. 
They're looking for peace and prosperity, which is no peace at all. It's only a facade. It too is a pseudo-peace, and we know that it can change just like that. There's yet another group of people trying to secure their own peace here in our passage. And this particular group of people had a guilty conscience, and they're trying to earn for themselves peace of conscience. Jesus is teaching things that contradicted their point of view, that were challenging their religion, challenging their authority, and distracting their followers. They're losing their influence. And these chief priests, the scribes, and the leading men among the people didn't take too kindly to that kind of activity. They were the people that gave the okay to these profiteers in the temple when they were supposed to make sure everything was done decently and in order for the worship of God. These were the people who were trying to find their security and their peace in religion, finding their security and their peace in the things that they did for God. And when Jesus exposes them as whitewashed tombs, they didn't like it too well. But rather than properly dealing with it and cleaning out those tombs, instead they chose their own path to peace, killing the messenger, getting rid of Jesus. And while that may have silenced the accusations against them briefly, the whole of God's word still maintained their guilt that at the end of the day they were whitewashed tombs. They thought killing Jesus would allow them to continue to live peaceful and quiet lives, restoring their place of prominence and importance, bringing back their religion again to what it was, and regaining the adoration of the masses. Their manufactured peace wasn't peace. It too was just another pseudo-peace, just another facade. What would Jesus do if he were to ride that donkey into Deshler? If he were to ride that donkey into Byron or Hebron, if he were to ride that donkey into your own home, would he find another group of people trying to manufacture their own peace, looking for peace in so many different places, chasing financial peace, people that are chasing so hard after it that they neglect their very own souls? Or would he find people who are convinced that the only way to peace in this world is through political conquest? We find people who are trying to manufacture their own peace and their religions and the things that they have done for God. In other words, would Jesus find people who have no peace? Where is it that you look to for peace? To your bank account, your country, your works, your obedience? None of these things will ever offer you peace. They'll just deceive you into thinking that everything is fine and you're okay. Jesus weeps over this city because he knows the many ways that the residents are grasping at straws, trying to find peace, and in the process, they've shut themselves off from the true peace, from only peace. And as Jerusalem catches his eye, Jesus knows what lies in store for them, and he knows what lies ahead for him as well. All of his earthly life was building up to this moment for this purpose. Jesus had come to Jerusalem for this purpose to accomplish peace. The idea that Jesus would accomplish peace had been wrapped up in that child that was prophesied of, the Christ child, since before Jesus was born. Isaiah prophesies of a child who would be born for us, who would be called the Prince of Peace. And in Luke 2, the angels announce to the shepherds this gift, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. 
with whom he is pleased. This tiny infant wasn't only the announcement of peace, not only the announcement of peace of God's will towards men, but the Son of Man, the Son of God who has come to accomplish peace. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, you'll find little narrative comments about the travels of Jesus following the transfiguration. And it seems insignificant. If you have a a red-letter version of the Bible, you can see just a few little black phrases here and there throughout the chapters. And it seems to be just the narrative moving Scripture along. But every word of Scripture is God-breathed and important for us. And so we look at these little comments And they remind the reader of the singular purpose that Jesus had. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And as those little black words say, to accomplish his departure. Jesus knows what is awaiting him there. Jerusalem, the city whose name means foundations of peace or source of peace. This is the place where Jesus had set his eyes to go to. He was determined to go there. Everything Jesus does from Luke chapter 9 and following is looking ahead to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, 10, 13, 17, 18, and 19 all mention Jesus making his way to the city of peace. And he continued on his way. He set his eyes toward Jerusalem. As he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And as Jesus gets closer and closer... He begins to make it known in more specific details what lies ahead for him in Jerusalem. And he tells those around him, he tells his disciples, revealing to them the sign of Jonah. And ultimately saying that the fulfilling of the writing of the prophets about the Son of Man was to come true. They will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus knew what waited for him in Jerusalem. Even while knowing crucifixion was awaiting for him there, he wouldn't change his course. He wouldn't take a detour from his father's will. He wouldn't flee in the opposite direction. No, instead, he sets his face toward Jerusalem and he continues to walk forward. He continues to teach, to point people to what he is about to accomplish. And here in our text, Jesus finally reaches the city limits and he enters the city. What Jesus wants more than anything else is for these people, for his people here that are residing in Jerusalem, these ignorant, selfish, murderous people who don't care about him, who only want to kill him and get rid of him, who want to silence him and shut him up, these people whom Christ loves, he wants for them to recognize what it is or who it is that makes for peace, that these people would find peace, true, real genuine, eternal peace. And so he shatters the facade of peace that these people had built. He tells of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, saying, you think that you're safe inside these walls, but I'm telling you what's going to happen. You aren't safe. That will never accomplish peace for you. He flips over the tables of the salesmen in the temple and drives them out because they think that financial peace is true peace for them. They're just using and abusing God's people. And he continues to teach in the temple until the very last day that he has here on this earth, pointing people to the very scriptures that he had come to fulfill, showing them how they reveal himself and what he was about to accomplish in just a few short days. Jesus doesn't give up on these souls that he weeps for. Instead, for the joy set before him, he endures the cross, despising the shame from these very souls and from many others 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For these people, these people who are so focused on making their own peace, for these people, he himself has come to accomplish peace. And he has done it for us through the blood of his cross. The true source of peace finally comes to Jerusalem. And that fountain of peace is found in the very blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. Paul writes these words in Colossians 1. He says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Christ has come to accomplish peace for you, peace with man, but also peace with God. That the certificate of debt that was talking about all the sins that you'd ever created was nailed to Christ to that cross and cleansed by his very blood. And now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death to his Father, accomplishing peace, eternal peace and lasting peace. Regardless of who you are or what your background is, regardless of where you've been looking for peace in the past, peace has been accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. And this peace is available to all. And this peace is available to you. It has been accomplished for you that you might know eternal peace, that you might know heavenly peace, and that you too might enter into it. As this passage continues, there's a sense of urgency in here in Jesus' words. It's not because Good Friday is coming, but Jesus doesn't mention that. No, he mentions what's going to happen down the road to these residents of Jerusalem. The clock is ticking. There's an aspect here of stubborn unbelief in these residents of Jer Jerusalem. Once again, they find their hope wrapped up in the possession of a building. So long as they have this building and their worship rituals, they appear to have hope and they continue to think of themselves as invincible. Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen. This hope is empty. This hope is going to disappoint you. This hope will lead you to destruction. Every last one of you. It was a hope that was based on an earthly temple that would be destroyed. The enemy was coming to destroy them, and the judgment of God was coming against them. There is an enemy who still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour, trying to distract you and to get you to misplace your confidence, to turn your attention not to true peace in the blood of Christ, but to some pseudo-peace, some false peace, whether that be money, power, possessions, or your own good works, he turns your attention away from the one thing that provides peace, the blood of Jesus. He seeks to destroy you by turning your attention to the law of God and your own ability to keep it. He tries to hide the blood of Christ from you, which cleanses all unrighteousness. Yes, even those sins that you still wrestle with. And Satan withholds that from you and says, that's not for you. He tries to lead you to despair, to get you to walk away from Christ, thinking it's useless. I can't be a good Christian anymore. For that or else he leads you to pride, deceiving you into thinking that somehow, through your own works, through your own actions, through what you have done, you have accomplished a suitable righteousness that will stand before God. But be warned, this too is a pseudo-peace whose end is destruction. There's only one place where peace comes from, and that comes from the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. Our time on earth is short. 
We have this life, and that's it. Scripture says it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And it continues on, and it says this, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, including your sins as well, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly wait for him. Christ is coming again, and when he comes again, he's coming not just to deal with sin that's been dealt with on the cross. He's coming to save those who are trusting in him, and for those who don't trust in him, they will be destroyed. Their time will be up. When he comes, how will he find you? Will he find you resting in the peace that has been accomplished through his blood, or resting in some other peace? Some other peace which is not peace at all. Find your peace, true peace, eternal peace, heavenly peace in the precious blood of Christ and in Christ alone. I'll conclude with this. Hear these words of Paul. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you sought fit from the beginning of the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world was set, that you would send for us a Savior, a Prince of Peace, who would accomplish salvation through his blood, through your own blood, that would save us and reconcile us to you. That though we may have been enemies, and though, Lord, we still continue to turn our backs on you, that there is peace and forgiveness through your blood. Help us, Lord, to find our peace in that. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the many facades of peace that we are trying to build for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to see their hopelessness and their emptiness, to come to rest in assurance in what you have done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our own hearts as well to cause us to weep for the salvation of souls around us who don't know you. Lord, that we would work to share your word with them, that they too might know peace. Give us a heart of compassion for the lost that live within our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.